0: Where are your casualties, I asked. Right over the hill, he said, gesturing to the knoll behind him, 30 feet from us. Take us to them, I said. No, he replied. No, we'll all die. I had to trust this guy. It was difficult in that we were in somewhat of a bind. The whole time I was talking to him, there were rounds impacting around us and I could see RPGs detonating and bouncing off the rocks right above. I was talking to a man who wanted only to smoke a cigarette. Through my scattered interrogation, he basically told me that they were black on crew serve ammo. This was bad news. Really fucking bad news. The reality that the only fire came from enemy weapons forced that cold, wet blanket of fear to tighten. If your men don't have crew serve weapons, you're pretty much useless. You have to overwhelm the enemy and maneuver on them so you can kill them. The battlefield is not like when you're on a shooting range and shooting targets with M4s. You have to suppress and maneuver over the terrain and kill the bad guys. If you don't do it, they will. Koa and I had basically hoisted into a meat grinder. We were surrounded by heavily armed insurgents and the Americans we'd come to help were out of ammunition. Welcome to Glorious Professionals, brought to you by GORUCK Media. I'm Jason, our guest today in the champagne room at GORUCK HQ is more like family. Roger Sparks is a retired recon marine turned Alaska pararescueman who was awarded the Silver Star for actions taken in Afghanistan in 2010. We met through a Goruk cadre last year and immediately hit it off. He's the author of Warrior's Creed, one of our cadre at Goruk Tribe, and his son, Oz, is a Goruk Tribe ambassador. To say it's an honor to have them join me today is a great understatement. Roger, welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I mean, you just reading that uh, intro, you know, I started getting goosebumps, and all of a sudden, I'm getting like beclimpt and almost crying. You know, it's uh, you know, being here is is kind of a bit of almost uh, validating the intensity of my emotions, and hearing you read that with that bedroom voice, you know, is just so intense. It's just, it's, uh, it's overwhelming to me. You know, to be allowed to, I guess, share, you know, your stage as a catharsis for myself.
0: I mean, that was going to be my my first question before we. Got, got into you know starting with your past and how you became the kind of person that has done these kinds of things was just like this is not an easy thing like we're sitting here you know kneecap to kneecap staring each other in the eye like brothers mm-hmm. you know and the, these these kinds of conversations are not what you describe as hey i'm gonna wake up today and this is going to be fun
1: yeah it's intense uh, uh over the the last summer i've i've gotten involved in a project where I'm interviewing quite a bit of people and it's BackboneSeries.com. but, uh, I'm interviewing other combat veterans, uh, with positive narratives for And it's the same thing. It's, it's a therapy session. You know, when you start pulling strings on people, it's, it's, uh, it's heavy. Yeah,
0: for sure. So let's go, let's go start in some of your, your earlier days. I want to, I want to talk about big Raj and your family and, and all that stuff. I mean, you, it was interesting growing up with Big Raj. I, w- I want to hear about his Harleys and his buddies and 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 all of that fun.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I was born uh, early, early seventies, and uh, you know, grew up in a pretty open household. You know, I I was purposefully vague in the book about my father's background, but uh, you know, he was he was a biker by all means. You know, and and uh, I grew up in a pretty open atmosphere of illicit, you know, recreational drug use. Uh, By today's standards, I'd feel I guess I was pretty neglected. But, uh, I mean, I had loving mentors around me all the time. And all these guys were uh, Vietnam vets that had experienced uh, significant combat. And they chose to turn away from the norms of society uh, as a sense of brotherhood, in a sense of tribe. Right, We were talking about it last night uh, because they felt that was their only truth that they could depend on. And they definitely worked in and outside the confines of the law doing the things they were doing. But, you know, I never felt unsafe. I mean, I knew these guys were violent. And I did witness my share of violence, you know, growing up. And I definitely wrote about that in the book, some of the key, you know, moments uh, that kind of, I guess, formed my, my young mind. But uh, I never felt, you know, threatened. You know, I always felt that these men loved me, you know, unconditionally. And they were there to protect me and, and, and my mother and my sister uh, but uh, it was definitely, you know, with hindsight and perspective, it was definitely not a, a standard upbringing. And I started to notice that, you know, just you know, we join the military and we create friends and bonds that that are extremely deep. And I would just talk to them about my childhood, and I would get these just like, wow, man, like holy shit, you know. Sure. And you know, I mean, storytelling is a beautiful part of the military because a lot of times, and you know, you and I joined the military before the internet, you know, I mean. I remember taking, doing deployments uh, before there was a thing called an email, you know, or there's, yeah. you know, and you would write letters, you know, and and all these things. But uh, storytelling was a huge part of entertainment within the military, you know, and I, we would just tell stories, and and people would always kind of be astounded uh, with, you know, what had happened in my past, and it was entertaining to everyone. So
0: I got pretty pretty good at telling stories. So, so what I got the sense of from your dad and his buddies was that they were operating according to a code. Yeah, without a doubt, yeah. How did that manifest to you? I mean, you wrote about some of them. Like, what's the thing that that stands out, say, the most? I mean, because not everything was 100% legal, as you said, or it's just not what people do.
1: Yeah, now. yeah. I mean, uh, you know, good or bad is all based of our off of our perspective. Like, I mean, the, the combatants that we fought in combat they're righteous, right? We're the bad, we're the wrong ones, you know? And so, but, you know, I think that these, these truths, you know, that they, they kind of live by, these codes that they live by, I think it was really unwritten, but it was, it was learned through severe circumstances within their lives. And the, the first was loyalty to tribe, loyalty to brotherhood. That was above all else. You know, and just tongue in cheek, you know, snitches get stitches kind of stuff, you know what I mean? But uh, they had loyalty, fierce loyalty to each other beyond anything else. Uh, because they felt they had been let down by the government, that the citizens around them could not understand their experiences. And uh, so they just insulated themselves with each other, having a good time and, and living their lives as full as possible. You know, I look back on those times and, and uh, it's the subconscious stuff, you know, just the, the way that, you know, our parents carry themselves with the things that they value. You know, a lot of my early past was formed by a guy named Jack Gaylor. And uh, he, he was a Vietnam era corpsman in, a, in an infantry platoon. And I was 15 or 16 years old. And this guy is a bear of a man. I mean, just a huge human being, but powerful. And he wasn't sloppy. He was really funny, very gregarious. And uh, I spent a lot of time with him, just naively. I mean, and I, I can share a lot of stories with him if you'd like, but, you know, I mean, uh, just to give you the, the context of this guy, you know, they would wear leather vests and leather pants and stuff and, you know, just always out drinking tequila or smoking weed and listening to Steppenwolf, eight tracks in the garage kind of deal. Loud pipes save lives. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And, and um, I mean, it was a very sincere environment. These guys were not weekend warriors with motorcycles. You know what I'm saying? It was, it was a part of their culture and tribe. And, and it was in a large essence, like their, their sense of freedom. And belonging men. and uh, they were very—they were—they were like tier one guys of you know the motorcycle gangs. And uh, but uh, you know this guy would break out every now and again. You know he would have his shirt off a lot, and he would break out in a red rash where he wore his flak jacket in Vietnam, where they had sprayed defoliant on him. And uh, I guess to understand a little bit just how open and colorful my my childhood was, I remember I was young, I was probably eight or nine years old, and I went to the bathroom and I opened the door. And uh, he was in there masturbating, but it was really wild, man, because he had candles and stuff lit with like an old Playboy. And it was really, I mean, he was, he shut the door. He's like, get out of here, man, you know, I'm working. And uh, (laughs) and, uh, it was, I mean, he came and talked to me later. He's like, you know, I've I've had experiences, you know, where, you know, I'm always struggling with certain things. And I guess, you know, long story short, this guy had had uh, an experience where they were in some tall elephant grass he had a little downtime and he was pleasuring himself to like a Playboy magazine, like in the Delta somewhere in Vietnam. And his uh, platoon was ambushed. And a lot of those guys were killed. But since then, he had had really weird issues with, you know, just erectile dysfunction, blah, blah, blah. But it was really tied with that event. So he would, uh, to get off, he'd have to go into the bathroom and get really comfortable and feel safe and masturbate to like a porn mag. And uh, so, I mean, just being around that kind of environment was just... There was no veil to the reality of life. It was just kind of like, you know, we're all scarred. And when you live good, you're going to get, you know, get some carnage, you know, you're going to get some damage. And uh, it was just all gritty and and just larger than life to me,
0: you know. Well, I mean, in, in, in On Killing, Colonel Grossman talks about how modern society has been completely divorced from sex and violence. Each have had their turns of sort of, you know, we segregate stuff. I mean, you segregate even slaughters into meat comes from cellophane wrapped containers at, at the store yeah. right and so I think that's certainly atypical right but it's it's probably closer to how I mean families used to have one hut mm-hmm. right when it's cold out everyone's in the hut yeah
1: there's no secrets man
0: right yeah there's no secrets
1: yeah I mean very much so I mean that's a great way of putting it um, I mean we can really go down the rabbit hole of talking about politics and war how they try to desexualize combat. But I mean, it's primal. And sex and violence, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, uh, you know, you're dealing with young men at the prime of their testosterone production and at the edge of their mortality. And somewhere at that edge is, you know, sexual desire and and, uh, expression. And I mean, it's such a phallic environment. Like, I I mean, I spent the majority of my military career or the early half of my military career as a a Marine. And so, you know, the Marines are, uh, (laughs) it's extremely, I guess, raw sexuality of like just- uh,
0: Everything.
1: Everything you can imagine. I mean, when you're living shoulder to shoulder with 30 other men, there's no secrets. And I really grew up in that environment. You know, I mean, I remember the first time sitting like at boot camp, Where there was no stalls, you know, and you're just sitting there taking a shit, you know, and I was extremely comfortable with that, you know, and and you see some guys, you know, they've been kind of somewhat sheltered and you're like, wow, man, this guy's got a lot to learn. He's going to come a long (laughs) way fast, you know, and then you take that even further to combat or living on ships, you know, and it's just it's as raw as it gets. I mean, it's it's a greek wrestling match you know i mean it's it's intense you know i mean you know just all of those idiosyncrasies that come with that it's interesting you know my son's in the marine corps now marine corps now and, and uh he's experiencing all that and so that's it's just awesome to kind of share that uh you know coy you know, environment, you know, just to, you know, he comes home and we talk and it's just like, oh, wow, man. Like, I know exactly where you're
0: coming from. You know, I mean, we're, we're not doing it justice now, right? I mean, I'm really, this is sort of the, the PG explanation Uh of the (laughs) NC-17 movie, you know, and you know, there's, there's plenty of, I mean, you see Full Metal Jacket or you see Go Regeneration Kill, Mm -hmm. which, you know, a lot of those guys are all of them. Oh yeah. Right. And it's like, you get a little bit more flavor. I mean, that stuff is, it's raw and i mean i don't know how like you're not listening to celine dion before you go into combat it's not a thing right like you're listening to metallica and and stuff like that and it's just you you are at that age i mean war is fought by young men and and women now but primarily in terms of just data the number of people it's it's overwhelmingly young men at that age a, a young age and it's it's raw.
1: Yeah, I mean, it starts, you know, just with a bunch of men and, and just that that uncomfortable sexuality, right? Of like homophobic just jokes everywhere, right? Uh, but uh, it goes much deeper than that because they're, what, what they're expressing is an immaturity to the love that they have for one another. another. And, and uh, you, it's palpable. You know, when you suffer to that extent with men under those circumstances— you are extremely intimate. We talked about it a little bit last night uh, when we were doing the, uh, the the book review of Tribe, but it, it's very real. And uh, I guess, you know, there's uh, so many similarities of that biker culture that I grew up in and then thrusting that into my military career. You know, but it's like I got all that, like a master's degree in that initially. And then so I could just move on further into the metaphysics of what am I seeking? What am I gaining? And how am I part of other men's stories within, you know, my sphere of influence, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, intimacy is the right word for it you see you know there's all the the jokes and all the this you don't know how to express this but it is i mean it's it's a love that is almost unrivaled yeah and in your life i mean your your kids your wife it's it's love but it's yeah there's, there's it's really interesting i think this i don't even think i share
1: this in the book but uh my first two years in the in the marine corps i was in the infantry you couldn't go right into reconnaissance you had to spend two years in the infantry before you could try it, because they wanted mature troops, you know, within the reconnaissance ranks. And, uh, you know, so for that two, first two years I was at, you know, E3 or below, you just, you know, burning shit and stirring it, you know, kind of deal. Digging holes and sleeping in it, you know, rucking all night, you know, you ruck all week. And then at the end of that, you do a final protective fire and just get rid of all your ammo and then you walk back to base, you know, you walk back <laughs> to your barracks, you know. And uh, that was really formative, I think, uh, but I had a really dear friend, and uh, he was like my best friend. I mean, you really bond with guys in those circumstances, and he was my best friend. We did everything together uh, from, you know, going and exploring Tokyo together to uh, working out every day with each other, doing very similar workouts. And again, this is early, early, like 93, you know so I experienced that with this, you know, amazing human being. And it was years later, I went on to go into reconnaissance and, uh, this guy went on to go to school and became extremely successful, you know, with a lot of different ventures he did, but it was years afterwards. He, he reconnected with me and he's like, Raj, I just want you to, you know, you're, you're a huge part of, of my life. And, and, uh, I just have to be really honest with you. He's like, he's like, I'm a homosexual. And what was crazy is, I, mean, I knew that dude better than anything, you know. And it's like none of that even mattered, you know what I'm saying? Like I didn't give a shit. I mean, he was a rugged, tough son of a bitch, and I would I would joke with him like, you know, we're always looking at my ass or something like that. You know, it just gets fun like that. But I mean, you know each other to the point to where none of that matters. And I think the best of combat leads us to that truth. Like all of these differences that people get so wrapped around, there it, it's irrelevant. I mean, we're human beings and. When you force yourself into those circumstances, it, you know, kind of puts a magnifying glass on the virtues of, within ourselves. And I, and it was just funny because it was just like I, he, he was like, I guess, opening up to me in a way that he felt that he had been um, not true to himself or true to our relationship by holding this thing in. But he was just coming to terms with who he was. But at the same time, I'm like I literally did not give a shit. You know, I mean, and that's that's what I think. You know, the value of combat, the value of sharing those experiences with other humans. Like you see that all of that's bullshit. You know, I mean, it's just well, secrets
0: are a violation. Yeah, and, and like that's the code that you two are operating under. Yeah, right. I mean, if, no secrets from the team.
1: Yeah, yeah, and uh you know, it's funny. I mean, I've been married like twenty six years now. Uh, I married my prom date. You know, same girl I went to prom with. Uh, we had a long distance relationship for a long time, and. Uh, we've got two wonderful boys. Uh, you've met Oz, my, my son, Orion. He's in the Marine Corps. But uh, it's funny. She was like, I told you the whole time you knew him. He was gay. And it's like, I never, I didn't even give a shit. And I still don't. I mean, it was just, but it was funny, uh, you know, how all that kind of played out. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's been a wild ride, man.
0: Okay. So back to back to kind of growing up and you, the the, the reason why I want to talk about your knee and the tumor in it yeah, yeah. as a kid was number one, you know, because of this kind of uh, tribe, your your dad and his biker buddies like they're hard individuals and you wanted to mimic them yeah. right and so that breeds a culture of silence of my suffer in silence right mm-hmm. and and the second point that i want to get to is like you you had to overcome a lot right i mean i'm talking tumor in your knee so let's let's go there yeah yeah i
1: mean uh, you know all of us when we look back on our lives it's like that adolescent years really define who we become you know mm-hmm. Who you hang out with is who you turn into kind of deal all of my my peer group in my adolescence uh really tight with you know my buddy joey my buddy little mike you know uh my dad pretty much worked for a guy named big mike everybody's bigger little and so my dad is big raj and i'm little raj and uh there was, At six eight that's a yeah. that's a thing right yeah yeah um and uh you know, all of the young men growing up with me, and it was a very rough environment. I mean, we had boxed each other on the trampoline until somebody fell off or came through the springs or whatever. Really rough. I mean, we played tackle football all the time, you know, and this is like in parking lots, man, you know. Oh. It was just a really brutal environment. And for some reason, like when I look back on that, all of the people that, especially all the young boys that I grew up with, they're older than me. by Like a year or two years. Like they were always a grade ahead of me. And so I was, I feel like I was always chasing them. And I'm really slight. I'm a skinny guy, you know. And I think that that really kind of made me have this self deprecation like I'm weak and I need to train harder. I need to work harder. You know, I grew up in that environment. And so at a young age, I started having some really significant knee problems and I had knee pain and, uh, I mean, I remember finally going to my dad I and mean, we didn't really have insurance. I went to my dad, I was like, hey, I need to my knee hurts. So they set it up. They, they, I went and talked to, I think it was like family doc, and he did his, you know, head to toe on me. And he was like, it's just growing pains. And which made sense, man. I mean, I was growing huge. I'm six foot eight, six foot nine, you know. And uh and so I was growing like a weed. I was like a really weird Norman Rockwell painting, you know. And so that made sense to me, but I was like, man, I'm just a wimp, man. Like I just you know, I'm a pussy, man. I can't handle this because this really hurts. And uh, <laughs> I just sucked it up and it, it got to the point and I, and I played all the sports, you know. And in fact, I was talking uh, with some dear friends the other day. I mean, this is brutal, man. Like in the 80s, junior high football in Texas. Wow, man. When I look at back on that, I think, I mean, from the French Foreign Legion to uh, Marine reconnaissance training to everything that the Marine Corps threw at me, everything that was thrown at me through the pararescue pipeline, the most severe, intense training I went through was summer two-a-days in junior high football in Texas. I mean, nothing fit. I mean, you might as well not even be wearing helmets. None of, none of this stuff worked. I mean, was probably like 10 or 20 years old at what we're wearing. And uh, these guys were brutal with this. But this knee pain started probably two years prior to that. And I just pushed through it, pushed through it, pushed through it. And I mean, I'd go play football, and football is a religion in Texas. And I would get destroyed, man. I would get absolutely annihilated. And uh, these guys would tackle me. And I mean, you know, just when you've had the, your breath knocked out of you, you know, by a guy freight training over, you, you don't even see him with your, you know, bullshit helmet that you're wearing, you know, and to get back up, man, that's intense, man. I mean, all these guys were bigger and stronger than me. And I think it was very formative. But, you know, within two years of my initial symptoms, I was had a job as a candy striper at a hospital and I was stocking some fridge and one of the docs there, he was a, a oncologist, uh, oncologist surgeon guy that was there. And I was—I would put like yogurts in their fridge or whatever. And uh, he was like, why are you limping? And you know, you're fucked up whenever you're limping and you don't know you're limping. You yeah. know when somebody's like, why are you limping? And you're like, I'm not limping. And, and uh, so that was kind of the situation there. And uh, he's like, you know what? Uh, let me just feel your knee real quick. And he kind of felt some things. And um, he's like, you have a tumor in your knee and I need to talk to your parents. And at the time, I think I was 16 years old, Riding my bike to this hospital, you know, to work at this hospital, you know, and and make you know a few bucks, you know, here and there, and uh, you know, I mean, despite my 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 father's background, he was really stern. Like I had to make straight A's, and I had to get a job as soon as I could. And you could get a job at 16 whenever you're growing up, and that's that's what you were going to do. You're going to get a job, and you're going to make straight A's. You know, if you can make a B, you can make an A. And uh, I mean, I loved and respected my father so much if I disappointed him, it really hurt me. And so, you know, he was intimidating. You know, even amongst the peer group that he was a part of, he was very, very intimidating. Uh, But uh, I loved him, man, and I I never wanted to uh, disappoint him. And so I tried as hard as I could, you know. Uh, But uh, I did have a tumor in my knee. I remember the first time the doc sat us down, he was like, we need to do surgery and we're gonna do a biopsy while you're out. Uh, It's 50-50 that, when you wake up from this procedure, you're not going to have a lower leg. And I just want to kind of brace you because you're probably not going to walk normal after this best, best case. You're going to have a leg, but it's going to be kind of lame. And I remember I just balled my fist up and I was just like, fuck you, man. Like you, you're not going to like dictate my future. Like I'm not going to allow this to define me. I was like, if you take my leg, I'm going to be a Paralympic athlete. You know, if you, Leave it on me. I'm going to make that thing the strongest appendage, you know, on my body and uh, woke up uh, from the procedure. I had my knee and I uh, it, it had eaten my MCL at the time, my medial collateral ligament, and they had to replace my MCL with a cadaver MCL and this is in the 80s you know i'm saying like you know medicine only improves as we go on i mean now people are getting like joint replacements like it's an oil change you know but back then i mean that's very invasive stuff you know i remember going through physical therapy and i was like man this is bullshit man because it was just like okay do some calisthenic leg lifts and squeeze your quads together for like 10 second count do 10 of them do four rounds a day and i'm like Man, this is lame, man. I'm like, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to get anywhere with this shit. And uh, it was difficult because at the time rehabilitative medicine wasn't what it, you know, what it is now. I mean, because now they try to, you know, increase joint function immediately. Uh, don't isolate the joint. Don't, don't brace it. And I think I was in a brace for like six months and it took me a long time to recover from that. But as soon as I got out of it, I had made plans. I'm going to start racing velodrome cycling to strengthen my quads. And uh, I mean, during this time, I got so involved in my own health, I would go to libraries and steal books on yoga and meditation. Because I'm like, what is this weird vitality in me that makes me healthy or not healthy or strong or not strong? Because, again, all the men that I was around, they were much stronger and more powerful than me. Where
0: do these questions come from?
1: Shit, man. I mean, I, I really don't know, right? But I think it was at the heart of it was self-deprecation. Like, what can I do? Like, the, the standard of the bar is here and I'm below it. And so what do I need to do to get there? Because it's it was very Alan Watts or Eastern metaphysics of like my problems are me. Like I'm not going to I can't blame anything else but me. And I need to focus on my sphere of influence and it was just innate. Like I, no one was teaching me this stuff. You know, it was just like I'm weak. I'm I'm the one that needs to get stronger. And uh, man, I would do exercises even with that brace on to where tears were just running out of my eyes, you know, and and I just, I don't know where that comes from other than self-deprecation. Like I I felt like I was weak or I couldn't, I wasn't enough. And maybe in some way, I mean, I mean, this, again, this is where we were talking at the beginning. This is very uh, therapeutic, you know, to talk about this stuff, but like, I wasn't enough for my father to respect me. You know, like I wasn't strong enough. I wasn't capable enough for him to respect me. So I'm like, I need to figure that out. After I did recover from that surgery, I had multiple more injuries to that same knee. I'd fractured, like when I started racing bikes, I'd mentioned, and this is probably six months to a year after that invasive surgery as a young boy, and uh, I crashed riding my bike and it fractured my patella of that same knee, and it partially dissected my patella tendon that comes up, and so, I mean, I'm sure many of the, the listeners to this podcast, you know, they've dealt with injuries, but I had severe chondromalacia my whole life, and so just those plaguing injuries uh, really just rub salt in the wound. It was like, fuck this, man. I mean, I'm going to get really good at whatever this is, you know. And it was always overcoming physical adversity. And I mean, at the time, I didn't think that that was like the recipe to becoming some great special operator, you know, but it it served me well. And I think that, you know, reading all of those quotes from Martin Luther King to Buddha to all those things of just, you know, like, you know, our greatness, you know, is equal to the difficulties that we face, you know. And I think that you know just even with what we're aligning with with uh you know creating this go Ruck tribe and pushing this stuff forward it's it's our salvation is in our suffering like that that difficulty and that pain is the 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 the, blo- the blooming flower you know it's like when you experience that and you make that y- your sustaining fuel man you're that's the recipe for success <laughs> you know I mean that you're gonna move forward successfully when that that's it but uh yeah I mean it, it was very challenging my entire junior high and in high school career. I mean, those formative years of trying to get who you are and what you are and where you're going in your life, it was extremely difficult. I was on crutches. I remember I was in a Spanish class um, and the teacher thought that I was special needs. You know, I was just into punk rock and shit. And so I had like these boots that were like riot boots or some shit, but they thought, she thought they were my special shoes, man, <laughs> because, and I bought them like army, like army, navy riot boots, you know? I mean, all I did was work out, but I was on crutches the whole high school career because of these injuries and these surgeries that I would have because of these really intense knee injuries.
0: And so you still got the girl, though. So how did that work?
1: Yeah, man. You know, I mean, who knows how any of this stuff works, right? But uh, there was a cute girl that would hang out. uh, You know, the wildness of my upbringing kind of spilled over to my really good buddy, Joey, when I was growing up. And we'd have wild, wild ass strobe light dry eyes parties people getting thrown through the sheetrock and he came from a broken home. His father had left and this is my childhood buddy. And I mean, when I talk about a wild childhood, I mean, you know, anytime I do any combat diver operations, we just got, I just came back from uh, Tampa and we were doing this thing with force blue. I'm sure we'll get into talking about, but we were doing basically some Marine conservation stuff on scuba gear out there. And I was just thinking, I was talking to whoever my dive partner was. I mean, I grew up playing tag under an active boat dock, you know I mean? There's no parents regulating this. And I'm playing breath hold tag under these murky water moccasin infested waters where people are just drunk boaters are screaming overhead with their boats and, you know, and we're playing tag under this shit, you know? And so, I mean, that was my childhood, you know, like if you want something to eat, go to 7-Eleven and steal a Chico stick. Okay. I mean, that, 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 that's the reality of it. You know, I guess just living in that environment, my thoughts on good and bad were always very, very gray. You know, and which really suits, you know, someone in special operations, right? I mean, because you're working with regulations, you're working with ROEs, you're working with all these things, but the truth is in the gray area. Yeah. Everything else is just someone's, you know, line they're trying to tell. I mean,
0: Lame is a Rob is a book, it weighs like 10 pounds, you know, it's yeah. quite a famous one. I mean, the whole morality around stealing a loaf of bread. Yeah. If you need it. Oh yeah. Right. I mean, th- these are these are timeless, yeah. Timeless questions.
1: Yeah. I mean, even like when you look at the story of Papillon, and if our listeners, you know, have never you know, read the book or uh, seen the movie Papillon, uh, you gotta see it. I mean, uh, but, you know, it's just, you know, he got thrown in a work camp in Burma because he stole a potato. I mean, you think about that, man. I mean, that's so intense, you know? Uh, so just injustice and, and uh, all those things, but it served me well.
0: So let's talk about how you, your dad, this, this gruff man with this this sort of warrior's code and such. The part that struck me in the story was how it was when he dropped you off to join the Marines.
1: Yeah, it was really intense. Uh, you know, my father, he, he had a pretty uh, a violent criminal record, a lot of manslaughter charges. And uh, one of the the things uh, he tried to do, and he was in, in prison uh, during the Vietnam, the height of the Vietnam uh, conflict. And I think at one of his arraignments, he asked if he could go Marine Corps infantry to absolve his, the trouble he had with the law, you know, with, with those, you know, those charges that were against him. And that was a normal thing back then. And I think it actually still is. It's a program that still exists.
0: Got a letter in the mail said, go to war, or go to jail. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's that was exactly. basic training cadence yeah, that yeah, you would exactly. sing to.
1: Yeah. Without a doubt. And, uh, that was my father. And, uh, I think that, uh, the judge said something to him like, "You know, I wouldn't do that to our armed service. I wouldn't do that to the Marine Corps." And which, so it's just so ironic to hear that now because I'm sure he would have done great. You know, I mean, it's just it's just it's just laughable to think that that you know he was saving the Marine Corps you know by not let my father in. But my father carried this with him, and I know that he always wanted to serve. Oh, you know, I guess to back up just a touch, uh, Jack Gaylor, the guy who talked about this biker that I spent a lot of time with. I asked him just naively. In high school, I was like, you know, who are the toughest guys in the military? And I mean, without just a a moment, he was like, reconnaissance Marines. And I was like, okay, what's that? You know, and he was like, I'm going to tell you a story. You're not going to understand it, though. And he was, uh, uh, they were at a fire base, and you basically have people that will walk people in and out of the wire, the protective area. And it was, that was his night. He was a guide to get people in and out from patrols through this fire base. And, uh, it's like two in the morning, he had to go wake up this reconnaissance team to, to kind of lead them out of the wire where the booby traps and just, uh, you know, protective fires that they had. And, and it's, it's kind of a coordinated thing when you come in and out, you know, entry, you know, departure, reentry friendly lines is the thing. He said, when he walked into that tent and shined his little funky moonbeam with the red light on there, he's like, they were all laying on the ground sleeping and all of their gear was laid out perfectly on the rack. And He's like, that is the hardest thing I saw in the entire war. And, and so he didn't really explain other than that, but I just remember trying to envision that and trying to understand why. And, uh, I mean, it was an unpopular war. And these men were doing that for themselves. And they, they were disciplined unto themselves. I'm sure they were patriotic, but, but they weren't doing it for love of country. They are doing it for the love of each other and that metaphysical tribe that they had created. And their, their gear was more important than their comfort, you know. And that, that was a rare thing at that time in Vietnam. But uh, that just stirred the pot for me, and uh, I started looking into it, and I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to go be a reconnaissance Marine. So whenever my father said bye to me, it was like, well, I'm going to go try to figure out what Jack and the rest of your buddies figured out. But I was kind of – I knew that I, I was carrying my father with me in that, uh, not through all of his lessons that he had taught me, but more of his pride in his son, or maybe that, that void in that – I guess uh, inability to serve was then projected to me to do that, you know, and I I felt it, it was palpable, but uh, you know, you you know, I joined in Texas and with the Marine Corps, you fly from Texas to San Diego. And I remember just the whole time I was just thinking about my dad the whole time. And I didn't really see my dad cry a lot, but my dad was crying whenever he said bye to me, you know, at that crappy strip mall uh, recruiter bullshit Depot thing there, you know, and, and uh, it was, it was a real moment, you know, and uh, I was very comfortable with it, you know, but uh, it, was, it was a big deal. It was, it was a moment.
0: Yeah. So then now you're you're in the Marine Corps and you want to keep getting after it. You want to go join Recon. You got a little bit of time before that, and I know that wasn't your your favorite part, which is where your son is now. Yeah, yeah, he's right? dealing with it. Now. There's some administrative stuff you did. Just you know, low man on the totem pole. You're dealing with a, a bigger service that has ideas for you. And and so, what was the first significant challenge? You know, Recon or or, or otherwise.
1: Yeah, I mean. Uh you know, this story is, is just timeless, right? I mean, whether it's, you know, World War I, World War II, Vietnam, Korea, you know, just all these different things, you know, I mean, from Desert Storm to, you know, where we are, we are now in GWAT, you, know, uh, you know, being alone that first time in boot camp, you know, and listening to Taps play is always kind of an interesting thing. It's a moment to where you kind of think about, you know, your commitment and why you're doing these things. You know, I guess significant moments. I mean, I spent uh, two years in the Marine Corps infantry in a grunt platoon, Second Battalion, Third Marines, Golf Company.
0: So, what year is this? Man, I, when did you join the Corps?
1: Like January '93. Okay, know? and uh, you know, boot camp was not anything. It was, it wasn't a big deal, you know. And then getting to SOI, that became a real thing, you know, because you're rucking everywhere. I think I broke my feet. I had uh, stress fractures in my feet.
0: So infantry, tra- infantry, infantry, infantry training.
1: training. Yeah, I mean, I, I had stress fractures in my feet as well as, uh, I mean, I had pneumonia. I had to be hospitalized. I, I. I Tripped with you know rucksacks and and uh, uh, crew serve weapons. One time we were running down this hill and I compound fractured my arm. That that was kind of a moment of like you know the only commodity that I have as a grunt is my health. And uh, you know hearing your story and you know speaking with Rich and you guys uh, you know developing you know boots and all this really kick ass equipment. I, I I started my my master's thesis on taking care of my feet, boots, equipment during that time. And I get weird man. I w- I would stare at pictures of alert patrols from Vietnam and figure out how they're wearing their web gear. What can I do to make it more ergonomic? Uh, I mean, I would wear pantyhose on my feet and then coat my feet in Vaseline and then put my boot socks on. I mean, just you name it, man. I mean, you absolutely name it. I was doing it. Uh, the grunts are the real deal, and it reminds me of uh, the movie uh, Cool Hand Luke. If no one, if you haven't seen that and you're listening to this, you got to watch Cool Hand Luke because that is a, a Marine infantry or just. A combat infantry platoon is Cool Hand Luke, and it's based off of a a chain gang, and this guy's just struggle with authority. It's it's definitely a lesson in humanity and what your place is. You know, like like fill the gap and know your place.
0: So over time, you develop this kind of understanding that death is inevitable, right? Where are you at that journey early on in your career?
1: You know, I think the, the military, you know, wars are fought by young men because you don't have a complete concept of that. You know, you're not a father generally yet. You're not, I mean, you might be in love and and having regular sex, you know, but you're not, you're not mature in your own mortality. You're bulletproof. Your commodity is your health, you know, your vitality. You can beat me up and I, I recover. I'm strong. You know, you're full of piss and vinegar, you know, and it's, it's interesting. So, I'm remembering now, I think I had my own mission statement, you know, and it was like, I want to grow mentally, physically, and spiritually as much as possible. And the military in combat is what's going to be my medium. And that is a rich environment if you want to learn those things. And I was very conscious about it. I remember I read a book uh, early in my infantry career. It was called In Search of the Warrior Spirit. And the, the author's name is Richard Strazy Heckler. And it's based off of Teaching meditative disciplines, disciplines to uh, Green Berets in Vietnam, and uh, man, I poured over that book, and and uh, I'm like, well, okay, those earlier glimpses of looking into meditation, yoga, Tai Chi, Qi Gong, all these other Eastern, all these Eastern kind of things, I wanted to understand what is the profound nature of that, and it was just it brought, it was brought to light in this book, and. I bought it when I was in the grunts at PTA, which is Pa Luka training area. It's like the live fire area for all the grunts stationed in Hawaii. And you're doing like full mission profile stuff. You know, you're shooting law rockets. You're calling in, calling for fire, you know, fast movers coming in. You're blowing up Bangalore torpedoes. You're doing all that cool shit, you know, but I'm doing all of that in austere conditions. Like as comfortable as we're going to get it with the months and months that we would spend there is, uh, Quonset huts. You know, Quonset huts, community showers where the, the ground is pallets, unheated water, uh, and maybe warm tray rats. That's as comfortable as you're going to get it. And uh, so, I mean, it's extremely, you know, expeditionary kind of living that you're doing with 30 assholes, you know, that are constantly stealing your underwear. You know, so it's, it's the real deal. And so, I mean, it just had this effect on me that I wanted more. But I, you know I did go into the infantry knowing like I am going to go into reconnaissance, so I was just basically doing my time I was doing my two years, another massive you know huge massive point. It seems like all of the the most intense things in my life have come you know where the, it comes in twos or threes, but like all at the same time
0: Murphy never strikes alone
1: yeah and it, it it was so basically uh my my wife and I at the time we were just you know boyfriend, girlfriend racking up long distance you know uh phone cards and shit, you know. I mean, for an E3 in the '90s, $400 phone bill is crushing. But uh, I was—we were paying them, and I was paying them happily. Uh, but um, we were planning on getting married, and I took leave. And uh, but at the same time, it was like this—I re- had just become qualified to try out for reconnaissance. Like I did my two-year time, and then Jennifer, my wife, she—or you know, girlfriend at the time—she's like, "Well, I would like to get married at this time." And I'm like, okay, let's do it. But it was like all at the same, within the same week, I got married and then I tried out for reconnaissance. And, uh, you know, even at our, our wedding, you know, I was, I was just thinking, I'm like, I am going to, in the back of my mind, as, as I'm getting married, I'm thinking about my resolve for that selection process. I'm like, I'm gonna fucking die or I'm gonna pass. And I've, I've got, picture this, I mean, basically I passed out on the beach and, and the reconnaissance indoctrination at the time was a day long event. But uh, much like, you know, some of the selection and the stuff that you guys do, but just balls out and you have to perform almost at an Olympic standard, you know, at all day. And at some point they want to see you fail, physically fail to where you just pass out. I mean, I feel like I've got a master's degree in this now, but at the same time, at that time, it was just all resolve. Like it was like, I'm going to complete everything that they put before me or I'm going to just die. And I mean, I was in great shape, Jason. And I know that, I mean, this is you're in this space, you know, of of constantly training people. I mean, my whole life I've been gifted with pull-ups and running and all these things. But I mean, at the time, I think I was running, uh, you know, three miles at like five minute mile pace. I mean, 20, 30 pull-ups. I mean, you could eight count me all day and I'm just digging a hole with my hands and feet, you know. And uh, those guys got me. I mean, I think I ran like the three mile in like 16 minutes, but you know how it is at those selections, like three miles is subjective, you know. There's a, there's, there's, yeah. a, I, you know, during my end doc, I was carrying a dead dog, you know I mean? Like the, one of the instructors, there's a dead dog on the road, you know, during the ruck, he's like, carry that dead dog. And so, you know, it's just like, just gnarly, you know, they had a slow crawl across the flight line or like, you know, just, you take your socks off and your insoles out of your boots kind of stuff. And, and they would make it much harder than. The, the raw numbers, you know, show, I and mean, you're, you've got a master's degree in that with what you do. And, and.
0: Are you saying you want to redo on your three mile run time, or. <laughs>
1: uh, oh, you know, you yeah, will, we'll definitely get to that. We'll get to that. But you know, the, uh, the, I mean, like even like the three mile run, I remember they stopped me at the turnaround. They're like, run backwards. You know, and you're like, what, you know, you're just you know, I'm just running, you know, like you you turn around, you start running backwards, you know, and then at some point they're like, turn around, stupid ass, you know, you know, so it's just like you're getting fucked with the whole time. And I mean, even the obstacle course, like the Marine Corps standard obstacle course, when you did the rope climb, you didn't just climb the rope and touch the top, you had to climb up and over and then descend the rope. And, uh, you know, I mean, when you add those little sprinkles of love to it, it changes the game, you know, and uh, I think I fell, I mean, I haven't even thought or even talked about this in years, even when I was writing the book, but I think I fell from the top of the rope and they ran over to me like, you're okay. And you're like, yeah, I'm fine. You know? And, uh, but, uh, at some point during the day I passed out and I remember I woke up in the back of an aid station with an IV in my arm. And this was like, you had to do like a 10 mile ruck or something, with like 60, 70 pounds and they have you going in and out of the surf zone and crawling and eating sand and shit. And at some point I passed out, but, uh, I remember waking up in the back of that aid station with the IV in my arm and I started crying. Because I thought I'd failed myself. I thought I'd failed my father. I thought I'd failed Jack and all the men I grew up with. Uh, but uh, one of the men, he was, his, Keith Grand is his name. I hope he's listening to this. But uh, his his nickname was Bah. In in special operations, everybody has a nickname. And uh, his nickname was Bah from the Flintstones, right? And this guy was this superb triathlete, shaved head, like big shaved head, but just like incredibly fit, but incredibly wise and very gritty and porous, I guess, you know, if you However you want to interpret that. And he looked over and he's looking at me and he's like, you don't have to complete the end doc to pass the end doc. And then in, instantly those, those, those tears were like tears of joy. I mean, like there was so much on the fucking line with what I just done, you know, that, that it, there was only one way it was going to go. And I mean, instantly those tears turned into tears of joy because I knew I'd made it. And I didn't make shit. I just basically made the, the selection process now to go through RIP, which was a nine-month program at the time of just Shaolin fucking hell. You know, uh, at the time they had three teams and each team would PT you once a day. This is fucking horrible shit, man. Like whenever you got your gear issue to you got a, 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 a scout swimmer kit bag with fins and fucking, I remember I'm a grunt. And so now I'm getting my, my, my booties and my fins and a fucking mask and snorkel. I mean, I'm fucking Marchenko, man. You know what I'm saying? I got, oh, you're, yeah. you're issuing me UDT shorts. That was so fucking intense. And so for every piece of gear that you got issued, you had to climb this fast rope in this, in this hangar. And it was like a 30 foot giant fucking warehouse and they would take apart the fins to where there's like a thin strap of this and you have to fucking, it was for real. And, uh, that, that started a nine month process and that was very intense I mean, they would take us running everywhere and you're you're running with like a 60 pound ruck with sandbags and, you know, large, it was the first time I ever had a large Alice ruck, you know, until then it was like small Alice rucks. And, you know, you quickly filled it up with sandbags and shit, but trying to run everywhere with booties on like, like swim booties with a 60 pound fucking ruck in UDT shorts. It's horrible, man. There's nothing ergonomic about it.
0: It is a good look though.
1: It is. It's sexy as shit, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, I ate it up, man. And at, at some point, again, I, I started having these issues where I was passing out every day. And I mean, these guys would haze the fuck out of us, man. I mean, unmerciless training, you know? And uh, I mean, you would pass out. I was passing out once a day from just exertion. And again, I'm in great shape. And one of the uh, instructors, his name is David Chairs. Again, I hope he's listening to this. I really hope he, and I gave, I paid homage to him in the book. Uh, every, his nickname was Chili. And this guy was cool as fuck, man. I mean, this guy could run like, I mean, like the wind, he was a great triathlete, and but he was just cool as fuck. And he was a cadre. In that program, you're called a roper, you know? And so you're wearing your sling rope everywhere. And they're like, uh, you know, tie me a bowling and, you know, fist to fist to thumb, you know, fist to fist to hand, you know, as far as distances. And if you fuck this up, you're going to pay him a thousand eight count bodybuilders, like right then. And, uh, he talked to me one day and it was on a, on a weekend and he brought me a gallon of water and a bunch of like weird, I think it was called Endurox. And it was like this supplement. He's like, drink three gallons of this a day. And the guy was just so fucking switched on and handed me a book. And the, the book was The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. And that book was so heavy. Now that book was kind of like an add on to uh, the book that I'd mentioned earlier, which was In Search of the Warrior Spirit but this book is by uh, uh, Dan Millman, and it's his life story of attempting to master himself beyond physicality. And so it kind of uses the storytelling based off of meditative disciplines. And uh, Dan was, and this is all based in reality, Dan was a uh, an Olympic trampoline gymnast and all this weird shit. But reading that reignited that fire in, I guess, Eastern religion and uh, metaphysics, you know, and I had to survive that shit. And When guys go to recon school, that's called BRC or ARS, depending on where you're at. And uh, I went through that. And at some point, it just became this joy, you know, going through that training, whether I had, you know, poison oak all over my nutsack and just dying and swelling up and just being an asshole, you know, dealing with all that, like it was just a joy. And uh, I, I think I thrived in those conditions. And at some point, you know, so you come back to the team's. Uh, went to dive school, went to jump school, you know, kind of went through the pipeline after that and got on my reconnaissance team, you know? And so it's like, at some point you kind of make it. Then what? Uh, Well, then, you know, you get used like a tie hooker, you know, then you basically start getting, uh, you know, you go on deployments, you know, and you go on missions and you do all these different things. And, uh, it becomes very real because now it's not about having oiled up biceps.
0: You're not. So this is late nineties still.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so now this is, and I mean, we're really jumping all over the place. I mean, I, I came in and out of the Marine Corps, and anybody that's been in the Marine Corps can attest it's a love hate relationship. You know, you love the brotherhood, you love the severity of the environment. I mean, it's a cult, man. But at some point, you kind of it burns you out, and you're like, "Fuck this shit." But then you leave, and uh, you know, I went and I joined uh, the Dallas Police Department. Uh, I I got quickly. Disinfatuated with that and joined. uh, I was started working at a bike shop because my whole life I've been into bikes and racing bikes. And I was like, I'm just going to do something for bullshit money, but something that I enjoy. And it allowed me to go and exercise uh, as my religion. And so, again, this is in and out of the Marine Corps. I mean, uh, I was a lifeguard in Hawaii for a long time, but I came back. Uh, My wife and I uh, moved back to Texas, where we're both from. And I would ride my bike 80 miles a day, like to and from work, you know? And I would ride my bike from uh, Fort Worth to the other side of the Fort Worth area, which is 40 miles and back in the middle of Texas in the summer and just building bikes and tuning up bikes and shit. And I met a really uh, powerful mentor in my life and his name is Craig Chalmers. And he was just this hardcore bike mechanic, bike racer there. And he kind of made me realize that I needed to go back in. The realities of this strip mall world that we live in the harshness of being lost in today's society, even back then, like in the mid-90s, in and out of the military, it's raw, especially whenever you miss that brotherhood. Uh, At the same time, uh, my wife and I got pregnant, and it was like, shit, man, I need that first and 15th, baby, and I need I need the insurance, man. I need the insurance. And so I, I went back in, and that's where I went into uh, reconnaissance again, and this time in California. And Synchronistically, I met up with all the men that I had worked with uh, in reconnaissance in the Marine Corps in Hawaii, where I was stationed. But what's so funny about that is, you know, it, it's it's a bit in the gray area. But uh, we had uh, a new commandant come into the Marine Corps, and uh, we were under investigation for hazing. That no, the, yeah, man. And I mean, the, the the training that we would go through was so severe. I mean, like filling your mouth with sand and doing a thousand eight counts was just part of your day, man. I mean, you'd regularly shit sand. And I mean, it's just horrible. I mean, the things that they would have you do are torturous, you know. And, and hazing is, is definitely a subjective term. When someone is training you, attempting to harden you so you can survive combat, that's not hazing, man. I think that that's just hardening you. And you need to understand the difference. Hazing is when someone has no idea what the fuck they're doing to you and they're humiliating you with, with physical punishment. I mean, I had my dive bubble and my, my jump wings pinned. I've got, I mean, they broke my ribs doing it, you know? I didn't consider that hazing. You know, I mean, it's just, your mortality is second to the brotherhood,
0: you know, and- Well, it comes back to intent, right? You yeah, know you're yeah. big on resolve and intent. Yeah. And this is what, what's in your heart as a cadre.
1: Yeah, ex- exactly. And it's like, it's not, as long as it's coming from love, from catharsis, it's real and it's okay. You know, it's like yelling at your kid, telling him to make his damn bed. You know, it's not like you're hurting their feelings and and you're a bad person. It's actually the opposite. You know, as long as it's coming from the right place, which I've I've experienced both sides of it. But everything I experienced in the Marine Corps, I think, was coming from a good side. But uh, the unit that I came from in in uh, Hawaii came under investigation uh, for hazing, and the commandant that was a hot hot word for him when he took you know command of the Marine Corps, and uh, we came under investigation, and and uh, you know I. I uh, was charged with, you know, NJP because of hazing, you know, ropers. During that time in Hawaii, I became an an instructor. And uh, I took it serious, man. Like, if I'm teaching you uh, tidal currents, and at the time, I mean, now it's probably an app on a phone, you know. But at at that time, you had to pull out nautical charts and figure out, you know, tidal currents with very shamanistic, metaphysical, almost alchemy, where you're looking at, you know, the tides of the ocean. And trying to figure out when you're going to insert at a specific time on high tide, so whenever the you're going to have less of a presence on the beach when you cross, you know the beach. You know, it's very metaphysical. It's very, very much so alchemy because you're using the forces of nature in your favor to affect a combat situation. And uh, I was super into it, man. And so when I would teach my students, my reconnaissance student, tide tables, that was I was giving them a religious sermon. And uh, I mean, I I would do you know, crazy shit to these guys. You know I mean? Uh, we would go on 10 mile rucks or 10 mile runs with their mouth filled with water. All, but all these things were like some kind of like uh, Kung Fu theater version of like trying to understand yourself or master yourself. And I took it very seriously. So coming back and, and that love hate relationship with the Marine Corps got out, like I said, came back in after we got pregnant and I had a good friend talk me and talk some sense into me and in coming back in, I was all in. I mean, and I was metaphysical. My religion became amphibious reconnaissance. And uh, I, was, I was married to it as I was married to my wife. And, and uh, I took it very seriously. Did a couple Westpac deployments within reconnaissance
0: platoons. So what does that mean? Where'd you go?
1: Uh, so Westpacs are Western Pacifics. So you go into the Pacific and uh, you basically are on an ARG, an amphibious ready group. And you basically project the will of democracy the business end of freedom, you're projecting that from that ARG or MU, you know, like uh, Marine Expeditionary Unit, you know. And so you're going to every place of, you know, the Battle of the Pacific, you know, from, you know, Bali. You know, you basically end up in the the Persian Gulf and you offload and you do presence of, you know, at the time, this is before 9-11, but you would go to Udari Range and you're always training for combat. But you could tell that you were there as like a political posture, like if you guys want to play, we're here. So you would basically be on a ship, and it's it's a young guy's paradise because you're on the ship for a week, and you get off in Bali. You get on, the, you get back on the ship for a week, and you're in Australia. You get back on the ship, and then now you're in Samoa. You get back on the ship, and now, you know, so it's like it's just mm-hmm. this really wonderful way, and then every day you're shooting. You know, you have to maintain shooting proficiency, so you're shooting your MP5s and everything off the, the back of the ship every day, and mm-hmm. all you do is work out. It's like prison, but you're special ops prison, you know? <laughs> And uh, you get you offload in these exotic locations for a three- or four-day weekend. It, it, it's an absolutely life-altering experience to do that. Not, you know, so that's considered a Westpac. And, you know, I did that a few times, and they were wanting to create more reconnaissance Marines. And the commander of the unit that I was in in reconnaissance basically held the power to give me the authority to train an MOJT where I could bestow the 0 0321 or the reconnaissance MOS on Infantry applicants that I would select and train and mentor into this process, and uh, I did that for quite a while, man. And and I I think I had a huge effect on the the culture. And in fact, uh, with your listeners right now, uh, I think many of them, you know, might still be in, uh, you know, MARSOC, uh, force reconnaissance, all that stuff at the time, you know. But all of those guys, all of the the command leadership of that right now, I put through during that time. Uh, Sergeant Major of First Marsock, you know, he went through that with me the uh, the Chief enlisted advisor for the SART Corman, you know Jody Fletcher, you know, he was a peer and he was a part of all that stuff as well. And so it's just really powerful to see what I did and where those men are right now is just profound, you know I later on went got and got into pararescue. It was funny because at pararescue, you're always you know you you basically integrate with Tier one teams throughout the world. and uh, many of the leadership aspects of the people that I trained that then went into leadership positions. They were in charge of the people that I was deploying with. And they're like, you know, you know, Sergeant Major Hull. And I'm like, oh yeah, man. Yeah. Guy, I, uh, I think I put him through rip and gave him his MOS and they're like, what? They're like, yeah, I know Jody Fletcher. You're like, you know, chief Fletcher, and they're just like, wow! But I'm here doing this with them. I'm doing the shooting package with them, or I'm rucking with them, or I'm doing a a wad in the middle of Africa with these guys before we get on a CV22. And they're just like, holy shit! How old are you, man? You know, and uh, but you know, I mean, a lot of that is lost just in our own resolve and intent with the way that we live our lives. But uh, it's it's been a wild ride. I know that I'm going all over the place.
0: So the the journey, the love hate, ultimately, you know, it's it's always more love than hate, but. Eventually, you did get out of the the Marine Corps.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, the the Marine Corps, and I think this is true for special operations in general, the bulk of my Marine Corps experiences were before 9-11, you know, and anybody that is of my generation that was in SOF before 9-11 and after, wow, man, what a change, right? And and I think that SOF at a high level before 9-11 was oiled up biceps, machine guns, and G-strings, you know what I'm saying? It's was, it was sex appeal, you know? And it was like, I'm going to master myself. Like, this is an environment for me to master myself mentally, physically, spiritual, metaphysically. And it's like, you are definitely like the Shaolin monk pipe hitters of the world to be in soft. However, after 9-11, it was like hookers turning tricks. It's like, guess what, guys? Guess what you're going to do? And uh, it became powerfully apparent that, you know, you at some point you exceed, I think your intentions with things. And that's when you know you have to change. And we talked yesterday and one of the things that you mentioned about me just observing me and understanding my story, you're like, well, you reinvent yourself. And it was definitely a time I wanted to go to a unit called VSW, which stands for very shallow water. It's a very vague unit, kind of like uh SOG, right? Surveillance and observation groups. You know, if it sounds benign, there's some shit going down. And uh VSW was the uh, the tip of the spear for amphibious combat divers in the military at the time. And, and that's a collection of SEALs and uh, marine reconnaissance combat divers with mammals, uh, beluga whales and bottlenose dolphins and very, very advanced vehicles and training techniques that they used to employ to secure harbors as well as infiltrate areas. You know, And so that was the unit I wanted to go to, man. And I remember talking to my Sergeant Major as I was kind of like up at my 12-year time limit in, in the Marine Corps. And we're friends. I mean, I mean, we had, we experienced things together and I was kind of like his right hand pipe hitter. Right. You know, and he's like, so what can I do to talk you into staying in the Marine Corps? And uh, I was like, I want to go to free fall school with my own dolphin. And he was like, ain't going to happen. <laughs> and he was like, the core was fine before you showed up and it's going to be fine after you leave. And I was like, fuck, man. I mean, cause I had given man, I mean, beyond cartilage, brain tissue and muscle tissue to the Marine Corps, I'd given metaphysical energy to it. And I mean, in the highest sense, Uh, but at the same time, it was like I I knew at that moment, I had exceeded my intentions. Whatever that conversation of that 16-year-old me with Jack Gaylor, you know, talking about the toughest men in the military are reconnaissance. I mean, i had exceeded that intention and I got out. And I knew I was wanting to just change. I wanted to stay in soft, but I wanted to do something else. But military is hard on families. And uh, with the long deployments, I was having a hard time. At the time, I was married uh, with one son, young son. It was, it was like shit, you know. I mean, you need to be there as a father. And if you are doing special operations, you're, and especially after GWAT, you're going to do 18-month-long deployments. You're going to basically deploy until you die or quit, you know. And, and I, it wasn't a pissing contest. I knew I could do it. And I think that I had the reputation, my nickname was Big Frog, you know, and, and my reputation, Big Frog's reputation was like, I mean, just fuck, I mean, walked on water. I mean, I could have shot one of my own guys and he would have blamed himself, you know? I mean, I felt like I was Tyler Durden from Fight Club. You know, I mean, like it was, it was a cult and I was definitely at the, the, the tip of that, that spearhead of the cult. And uh, I knew at some point for me to grow, I had to change directions, uh, not only for my family, but for myself. And so I went back home to Texas and I got a job that would enable me to train my fucking ass off. I was a high school swim coach and I was swimming like literally like 10,000 yards a day and running to work, running back and just hazing the shit out of myself. And I remember it was really a disjointing thing. So I went into the Air Force recruiter and uh, I was like, uh, hey, I wanna be a PJ. Uh, Here's my DD-214. And so, this is like this overweight recruiter in this shitty strip mall. I think it's the same strip mall that I joined the Marine Corps in. And he's looking at my DD-214 and-
0: So that's just your military records from your the Marine Corps? Yeah, it's, it's a yeah. no
1: shit. Like if, if from military guy to military guy, if you wanna, if guys say they're SEALs or recon guys or Rangers or Green Berets or whatever the fuck people claim to be like, show me your DD-214 cause it's gonna show you matter of fact what the fuck's going on. Yeah. And I'm sure guys are like lying about that shit or whatever, you know, but whatever. But it's, it's, it's a matter of fact statement of your military record. And so I knew that that's all I needed. And so I brought in my, my uh, the only copy I had, he Xeroxed it and he's sitting there reading it, but it's this overweight Air Force guy and he's sitting there looking at it. And uh, he, there's like young recruits, wannabes like hanging out with him. And again, this is the Air Force, right? You know, so it's like, they're kind of chunky. They're not tough kids. And I don't want to stir any, or ruffle any feathers, but generally special operations forces within the Air Force is extremely limited. And that that is really curtailed down to pararescue and combat control. There's some other you know super frivolous you know MOSs. There was like combat weather, and there was another one. Uh, I mean, there's TACPs within that too. And and I don't want to take anything away from anybody because you serve in combat and you're bringing the fucking fight, you're, you're, I take my hat off. You.
0: I'll give you my fucking shoes. And, and we'll get to the importance of the aircraft above you, yeah. which of course yeah, the yeah, Air I mean, Force, God bless them.
1: Yeah, exactly, man. You know I mean? Uh, you know, if you're getting shot at, I love you, man. You know, and I I'd never take anything away from you, but generally when it comes to special operations within the Air Force, it's combat control, which is CCT or pararescue. And I'd always been interested in medicine from the difficulties I'd faced growing up. You know, I, I knew everything about anatomy and physiology and uh, anytime we had Sark Corman there, I was just, I was like, yeah, man, I, I, I love what you do. I understand what you do. And we do battlefield trauma courses where you give yourself, you know, large gauge, you know, IVs and shit. And I knew that I was interested in it not because of combat medicine, but out of metaphysical understanding of my own body, if that makes sense. I'm still chasing that fucking tail of I need to master myself because I'm weak. Even though I'm like this. Accomplished reconnaissance marine, and, and so I mean at this time I'd had experienced the French Foreign Legion commando course in French Polynesia, all of the courses you know in the pipeline from uh, Marine reconnaissance training and the soft you know insertion extraction courses, uh, Sears School, all this stuff you know I, I'd experienced that, uh, and I was at this shamanistic level of culture within that. But so this guy's reading my DD two fourteen that record in this recruiting office, and uh, he's looking at him like so I want to be a PJ if you can just set this shit up, you know, here's my phone number, you know? And he looks at it and he was like, why do you wanna do all the hard jobs? And I was like, fuck. I'm like, am I in the wrong place, you know? And it literally took like three or four weeks for them to send someone out to, to basically run a physical training test on me. And it's called the PASS test. Physical aptitude something test, you know what I mean? But it's strength test. And so it's like basically saying that you're a race car like, you know, when you go to a selection course, you have to go to a pre-selection course that says that you're not, you know, you're not a a, a Kia, you know, you're not a, you know, you're not a a Prius, you know, that you, you have a race chassis and we can fuck you up because if you, if you don't have the minimums, they can't really train and test you. And so what those pre-selection things are, are basically saying, we're not going to fracture your hips because you're fucking weak. You know, when you put a rucksack on, it's like, you grew up getting punched in the face, you know, and, and you're tough. You can handle it. You know what you're getting. And so, and it was funny because I, again, I was a high school swim coach and, uh, this guy, this guy, they sent this guy to me and I'm working out and and I, I'm in charge of the pool. And he was like, you have to do four 25 meter underwaters. And I think I did two 50 meter underwaters, like just with like minimal break, you know, and he's like, okay, that'll work. And then I had to do the swim and I did that real quick, hopped out, and, and he was trays. he's like, I think you need more. I'm like, no, I did, I did it, you know, he's, and he was just this guy, he was usually you have to have someone who is a pararescueman or a combat controller proctor the test, but he was just some recruiter. And so we went outside, and it was like 110 degrees out there in Texas, middle of summer, and I had to run the three miles, and I think I ran the three miles in like 16 minutes. And this guy was hot, and he's wearing his bullshit recruiter uniform, and he's fucking sweating through it. And he's like, I think he passed it, I think we're good, okay, we're done. And I remember he left, and then I I went ahead and finished the test. I was like, "Fuck you, man! I'm gonna do the test,"
0: because
1: <laughs> I was just curious what I was gonna get on it. But um, and I was I honestly questioned if I was doing the right thing because this guy had such lack of resolve and intent. This guy was not a meat eater. He was not a he wasn't an operator, and uh, he had never gone through selection like that. And so. And I'm at the point in my life where I can read someone's resolve and intent. Like I can, I think I'm so trained that I can look someone in the eyes and say, yeah, you can pass selection course of any type or not. You know, I mean, I can just like hold, I mean, I have this temporal scanner. I can just hold up to your, look into your eyes and say, you have the resolve and intention. You're hungry enough to pass through this. And then this guy, he didn't understand what he was even selecting me for.
0: And so you, I, I know that the next phase is you go from cadre to, to student again. You didn't really enjoy it. Yeah. Right, so- read the book for a lot of those details. But what interests me is you're, you're stationed in Alaska. You're, you're a PJ. You're, you're running domestic to Alaska stuff. This is the part that kind of, I had no idea about either. And I've, I've worked with the PJs. They're, they're awesome. You guys are awesome. Right. Thank you, Everybody, everybody. (laughs) Well, nobody dislikes someone who's risking their lives to save
1: you or your friend's lives. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So you're you're doing domestic stuff, you're you're inserting yourself and then you're also doing combat tours.
1: Yeah, I mean uh, we're going to jump way ahead. I mean, please read the book uh to fill in any gas. but I was uh, actually paralyzed while I was stationed at the 23rd STS. My first duty station as a pararescue man. I was I was paralyzed and it's a horrible uh event in my life uh but the day I had the surgery, uh we went to wake up my youngest son Oz who was 4 months old at the time from uh from his crib and we were just moving into a house and uh he was not breathing, no pulse. And so I couldn't even walk. I mean, I was paralyzed, I think for three months before I'd had the surgery and I could barely stand of my own strength, uh, when this happened. And so I did CPR on him for 30 minutes and then he started having agonal respiration. So my four month old son, I did CPR on him for 30 minutes. The day I was having surgery after this event, I mean, from me being paralyzed to this situation with my son, Uh, It was difficult. It took me two years to recover from that. But at this point, you know, with my background, it's almost like I'm hardwired to recover from whatever injury you give me, right? And so I did recover from that. And we are glossing over a lot, but please read the book
0: and get into it. But Well, well, back to Oz real quick. The the, the physical stuff is, I'm sure, the easiest part to recover from. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, for a special operator to be paralyzed, Again, your only currency is your health. And when you take that away from someone at the height of their abilities, I think that is one of the most intense things that you can go through to make you close to your own humanity, you know, with your own limitations. And then on top of that, have as a father and protector to have my son, you know, to do CPR in your four month old son, you know, for 30 minutes is the most vulnerable. Thing that and traumatic thing that I think anyone can go through, and so very subconsciously, I think that Oz and I kind of became the same soul at that time, you know, because I was so injured, and then he was so injured and robbed of his vitality at that moment. And uh, that it's just like we just at that point, souls touched, and it's just like we're just the same person, you know.
0: When I see you guys around, it's I really, really sense that, you know, and you talk about looking into someone else's eyes and, you know, I look into your eyes. I've I, i I've seen that look, right? I, I know that look. I love that look. <laughs> and, you know, I look into Oz's eyes and I, I see that look, right? I was, before we sat down here, I'm looking out the window from my office and you two are just out throwing the football around. It's a beautiful day in Florida. You're out in the, you know, out there and I haven't seen a lot of bonds that are like yours. I mean, and I'm, I'm talking anything combat. I mean, the the bond of combat is, is special. The bond to, you know, your, your wife or your husband or your, with your kids is, is special. But I, I believe you when you say that your, your soul's bonded in, in that moment.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to explain unless you experience it and, uh, I'm, I'm lost for it. You know, like, I mean, it's just a part of my consciousness and it's a part of my life, but, uh, you know, so Oz is 16 now and, uh, he's nonverbal. He also has type one diabetes. And so he's an athlete though, you know, and so he expresses himself physically to maintain or, or engage normally with other people. And it's just funny, you know, I mean, all the different things I'm involved in this conservation dive program, this backbone series that I've filmed over the last uh, year or so, and just everybody that, that gets involved with him understands that magnitude and he changes you. You know, to be around him, he will absolutely alter your perspective of how you feel as a human being. And, and it's it's just such a pure thing. And I always joke, he's a unicorn, man. He is a unicorn <laughs> and he will fuck you up, man. He he will bring a tear to your eye. And and uh and because he's he he embodies joy, but not in a Cliche way. Like it's so genuine. He just wants to be a part of whatever we're doing. And I mean, my life after I've retired over the past two years has gotten so crazy. I'm involved in so many different things and I'm not trying to do them. Uh, But, um, you know, to back up all those traumatic instances, excuse me, happened. And uh, the Shangri La for pararescuemen is to go to one of two places the 24th STS or Alaska. And Alaska is special because once a week, on average, annually, you're going to either jump in or fly in a helicopter to save someone's life in a very real way in the wilds of Alaska. At the same time, you maintain your the same dwell rate or the same deployment rate with special operations teams overseas. And so you're very, very utilized. And uh, your skills are honed extremely sharp. I mean, because a normal day as an Alaska PJ is getting on a helicopter and just training, but you're going to fly for two hours and, and do a, a halo drop onto a, an unnamed glacier in Alaska and be picked up. And then at some point during the day, you're going to fly out to someone who's mauled by a bear, who's maybe still actively being mauled, and you have to fly four hours to that location or uh, a plane crash, a family family in a small super cub or bush plane, and they crash into the side of a mountain. And it's 40 below out, and you're going to uh, static line square onto the side of the mountain. There's no ground party. There's two PJs and it's your four hours one way C-130 to get to the site. You know, I mean, it, it makes, it brings tears to my eyes. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it, but you are saving them. And which, it's so intrinsic in, in, in my experiences. And I don't want to lose this thought because I think the reason I started getting emotional right there is my experiences as a PJ are so interlinked with doing CPR on my son. And all of the patients that I experienced are put hands on. It's as if I was attempting to save Oz from his injury. And uh, that was extremely powerful. Uh, And that definitely reared its face. Uh, And I know we're going to talk about some of the combat situations. Uh, But uh, that definitely, uh, I was not aware of it. I mean, I would do jump missions where, uh, you know, if the weather, the clouds would, would make the aircraft that we were flying in or jumping out of, have to get closer to the ground uh, by two or 3,000 feet, I'm okay with exiting the aircraft at below our minimum exit altitudes. And I I never understood why I guess I was so uh, willing to take risk like that. Uh, But I mean, again, I grew up in that gray area. So it's like, if you tell me the the low deck for uh, exiting uh, high-performance aircraft, meaning it's traveling at 130 knots, is 5,000 feet with this parachute system. I'll just turn off the reserve and I'll jump. I'll jump at 2,000. I'll jump at 2,000 if that's what's necessary. And I'll pull the, because I, I just, i have done it so much. I know the fudge factor. And I was called on the carpet multiple times by my commanders, like, hey man, you are uh, kind of a, a wild gun. And we need to talk about that rescue that you did last week or, you know, whatever it is. And because and, I was I mean, th- there's, there's right and wrong. And then there's what gets shit done. And I was all about getting shit done. Uh, but again, in hindsight, most of those were because, and this is all in reflection, but because of those traumatic experiences that I had with my son, Oz, it's almost as if I was trying to save him on all the rescues that I was doing.
0: Well, you also bring up the the instance where the father says, don't let my son die.
1: Oh yeah, man. I mean, it's like, I had never even thought about it in that circumstance, but One of the first rescues that I did, just so people can understand the severity of of an Alaska pararescueman, people fly small bush planes and aircraft all the time in Alaska. They're more numerous than vehicles in Alaska. And so it's a regular means of transportation. And a uh, small bush plane had crashed, and we responded to it. And uh, the aircraft was on a precipice ledge where we have to shore up the aircraft with climbing equipment before we can enter to extricate fatalities and people that are still alive in the aircraft. And when I entered the the site, there was a uh, father holding a son, and uh, everybody in Alaska knows who the pararescuemen are because again, the air traffic and if anybody's going to come and save you, it's it's the Alaska Pararescuer. The the Alaska Air Guard is is heralded in in Alaska for these rescues, and so I entered this the small wreckage and he's holding his son rocking back and forth. And he's like, I told you the PJs were coming. And he looks right at me. He's like, please don't let my son die. And his son is, uh, he's got guts hanging out of his ass. He's eviscerated and he's puking coffee ground blood, which means he's internally bleeding. I mean, that was my first mission. And when you're the young guy as a PJ, you're always the medic and everybody else are managing aircraft or rope rigging and all these different things. And I mean, that was my first mission as a PJ. And it was just a sledgehammer not only to your subconscious but to the the realities of, of what you're doing uh and again just to talk about alaska pjs i mean you get i remember i showed up there and i got issued like a hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment i mean everything is tailor-made just for you and it was funny there was this, that's a
0: lot of rope climbs
1: it, it's yeah exactly <laughs> yeah man thankfully we didn't have to do it at that point you'd already done enough eight counts you just have credit right and but I was overwhelmed at the amount of shit that you get issued, and it's it's fucking overwhelming by even soft standards. It's it's through the roof, you know. And there was this old crusty fucking C one thirty pilot. Everybody would come to our gym to work out, and he was working out. He was just walking by. Uh, Joe Clyde was his name, and uh, he walks by and he sees all of my equipment because I'm pulling price tags off of shit. And he's like, "All that shit's pretty cool, man." He's like, "But you know what? Fucking sucks. Is you're going to use every bit of it." And it was just like. Huh. <laughs> All right, man. That's fucking cool. But, uh, you know, I was, I was in an, the Alaska pararescue unit for, uh, just over 15 years, I think. Um, uh, and, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a, uh, tier one unit amongst itself. You know, I mean, it's, it's an extremely, uh, relevant unit. It's kind of at the vanguard of pararescue capabilities. And, um, yeah, I deployed, you know, quite a few times as a pararescuman. you know, to Bogram. Uh, to Iraq, to Africa, uh, but uh, in the book, you know, one of one of the most significant events of my entire life, short of doing CPR on my son, uh, was an event in 2010, and uh, I was basically the NSUIC of a five or six month long deployment that was there. I think we had been there for three or four months. We were in guardian angel capability uh, for not only soft forces there, but for any coalition forces that needed our services. And so we would generally either take off from Bagram or we would take off from a pre-positioned location to go into the middle of a firefight to extricate people that are wounded, whether that's a vehicle-borne IED uh, ambush that kicked off or you know someone stepping on a mine in the middle of a wadi somewhere, soft forces engaged in kinetic activity, uh, we would pre-position specifically for that. Uh, but we are there as as rescue specialists. I mean, whether a C-130 goes down in the mountains or some contractor's having a heart attack on a FOB. A lot of times when we would respond to those uh, situations where like a contractor's having a heart attack, I mean, we're all paramedics and everything, but that's like sending Mr. T to babysit your kids. You know, like we're trained to go into the middle of the firefight and fight our way in, get to the casualties and fight our way out. And not to take anything away from medevac, but we're not medevac. I mean, you're dealing with, very highly and capable crews that are specifically trained to fly into the middle of a firefight, you know, and mitigate that with our own equipment, you know, fight our way in, fight our way out. But, uh, and I'd, I'd experienced, you know, significant levels of combat throughout my career, but the things that we did experience during bulldog bite were uh, it's, it's surreal, you know Uh, you know, it's like everyone wants to posture to their experiences to they really, Really fucking see the fire, you know, and uh, it was so surreal that it made me grow again beyond my the intentions of what I was trying to experience and soft because I mean, up to this point, I was still using this as a means to develop myself mentally, physically and spiritually, as well as a means to put food on the table for my family. I was finding more growth in being a leader of men in combat like that. Uh, most of the men on that deployment, it was their first deployment and there were many men that were there uh that they had careers in soft and then they were experiencing that level of of surreal combat to where it it overwhelmed them as well and uh trying to manage that space i think that that's one of the greatest gifts i've ever given other human beings was to lead them in that environment but i think anybody that you know, has really seen that stuff. You just survived those moments and you're left with attempting to articulate them or understand them. You're like a broken record trying to dissolve it down to, you know, what happened, what I did right or wrong, the, the grief issues of those experiences. Uh, just constantly mentally and subconsciously attempting to process it for value is just overwhelming.
0: So essentially you had a platoon that was ambushed yeah aggressively and you guys are and it's and it's really bad.
1: Yeah yeah the uh, the so just the myopic view of it we are in northeastern Afghanistan in in an area called the Waterpur Valley. Uh, we were talking about Sebastian Younger last night Uh, the Pesh or the Peck Valley is some of the most contested mountainous areas of Afghanistan. It's basically on the border of Pakistan. All of the MSR routes for the insurgency run from Pakistan right over that border. The mission was basically to uh, reconnoiter and close with and destroy insurgents in the area that were using the the area uh, for known insurgent training camps. So basically, they have the ranger school of insurgency in these mountains, and they landed uh, basically 230 rangers and 101st airborne troops and a bunch of CIA guys as well to basically... They landed CH-47s in the middle of the night and they were going to patrol down the mountain from 7,000 feet down to 3,000 feet where the valley floor was and close with and destroy. And we had been a part of these operations uh, on multiple occasions. And they would say, we're going to take 10 to 20% casualties, uh, you know, be ready. We have, you know, CSAR, which is Combat Search and Rescue. That's who we are. We're not going to do it unless the PJs and Combat Search and Rescue is involved. And so we're kind of like their insurance policy. You know, you get shot in the face, and the hand, and the legs, and you're going to die, and you're going to exsanguinate out in the next 30 minutes. We'll be there in 15 minutes. We'll come in, come right into the middle of it, and get you out of there and take you to cold steel. You know, like bright lights and cold steel. You'll be having, you know, you'll be in surgery within 30 minutes of you calling us. That's what we're trained to do. And so we're always ready for that. And uh, when that operation kicked off, it became very real because on the first mission, so basically we get a nine line, our guys take off. And within 10, 15 minutes, they're airborne inbound to the the actual tick. And this is all high terrain stuff. It's at 7,000 feet and all of it. So there's a lot of complications. I don't want to get wrapped around the axle of the tactics of the things that we were doing. But we, you can't, you have limited fuel, limited ammo because of the weight of the aircraft. And uh, one of those things we do is we take the ballistic flooring out of the aircraft to give us more time and more ammunition on site. But on that first mission, there was a guy that was, you know, basically shot through the chest. He's going to die in 30 minutes to an hour. We respond and, uh, just en route to that location when the guys get into to the terminal area and we can't land the aircraft, it's from a hoist. So imagine in a hoist where the aircraft's hovering, a pave hawk's hovering and guys are hoisting down to the ground and the aircraft is taking fire from crew serve dishkas. And this is really intense stuff. And, uh, it's what we're trained to do, but it played out. So on that first mission, uh, one of the PJs was shot through the bottom of the aircraft and shot in the head, just going in to pick up the wounded. And that really set off an entire week of very intense, surreal experiences to where we were sleeping two hours at a time, uh, flying in. And this is, this is not guys that are have a stubbed toe. This is not even guys that are shot. This is guys missing an arm dragging their dead buddy, pleading for you to come in to get them out. And, and the whole time that we're doing this, there's holes coming through the aircraft the whole time that you're doing this. And uh, as a career soft guy, you know, we always have our resolve and our intentions tested. But that, it was very metaphysical, you know, and it was, it was beyond a meat grinder, you know. Um,
0: there's, a, there's a part in it, Roger, where your, your intentions were very pure and they are pure and your resolve is, is very, it's very inspiring. And you talk about, I mean, I got, I was rereading this, your, your book in the last day or two, and there was the, when, when I was reading this, it's like the part I didn't want to get to, you know? It's, it's why I didn't read it last week almost, like which is why I think it, it, it should make people uncomfortable to realize what is asked, the type of sacrifice that people go through the part that that really spoke to me was you talked about the rage that you felt and and the rage was because your job was to go and save lives and you have these these men who are there and they're dying in your arms and i mean no shit man like Three hours ago, I've, I finally I'm like, all right, I got I got to reread this before, and I'm sitting over there at, at my the corner in my office, and I'm sitting there just crying, reading your story, and I'm like, good God, look look what look what people do for one another, like look what you were tasked to do, and and that's what you just you wanted to give more.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think that. Um- when, when you're in the midst of that, you're, you're interacting with it in a very subconscious way, you know. And I think that, again, in hindsight, I think that made me extremely effective in those environments was everything within the book that led up to that moment. Uh, and primarily uh, the situation with Oz. And, and so if, you know, there's men getting ripped apart or shot in the back of the head by insurgents, across above, over the hill. Like I have to get to them because that they're doing that to my son. And, uh, you know, I mean, none of that is conscious and, you know, and I think that, you know, a lot of people that would listen to this podcast, you know, they may have experiences, you know, somewhat similar within their, their combat realm of you don't rise to the occasion, you fall back on your training. And, and as pararescuemen, you're trained so much to attempt to salvage lives. Like you, you, you're trained to save lives and, I've dealt with a lot of grief. And, and when we got back from that mission, uh, we had to see her, uh, we had to get evaluated by Sear Sykes before we could go back out three days after that and continue working. But uh, one of the things that the guy said, I'll just never forget it. He is like, you know, I'm not going to fix you. I'm just going to tell you what's going on with you right now. Because I would just break down crying, just inconsolably, just go fetal and start crying just, you know, within this three days after this event. And we had to go back right out and do the, this another week similar to that. But, uh, you know, he was basically saying, you know, he just started laughing. He's like, all oh, you guys are the same, man. And he, he's basically a seer psychiatrist that deals with tier one units. And uh, if guys get rolled up or they become POWs, he's the guy that basically briefs them back to drinking Gatorade and going getting hot chow, you know. <laughs> he also interrogates high level uh, insurgents that we'd capture, you know, just the, the, the psychology of combat is, is beyond normal comprehension. So he's kind of like this buffer between this, but, um, he was basically saying, he's like, you know, you guys always make me laugh. He's like, I call this the Superman complex. He's like, you think you can do anything. He's like, that's what makes you good. He's like, but that's your undoing after it happens. Cause you're never going to save everybody. You know, you're never going to do that. But when you hold that as your standard, that's your standard. That's what you need to do is, is do, The unimaginable or do the impossible. He was like, that's that's what hurts you in the end. Yeah, that's your weak link, is your mentality of it. You know, I mean, because you have so much resolve and intent built up, but then to fail people at that, that intimate level of, you know, I don't care who you are, but if you've had someone that's mutilated die in your arms and beg for their life, you are implicated in their death, specifically when your job is to save them. And so you will carry that with you the rest of your life. And I think that, you know, how I've attempted to deal with that is to try to find, well, what value, what is, What are? you know, when we survive combat, you, you know, I, we try to heal others to heal ourselves. And, and, and again, you know, I'm involved in, in all these different projects from uh, this Backbone series that uh, I've been involved in, but I'm attempting to find value out of my experiences. I'm attempting to, that, that man dying in my arms and looking at me, I want to make his life worth it you know, and, and I feel that I owe that we owe that, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I don't think combat is something that should be glorified. I think that it's something that needs to be understood. And, uh, I mean, I, I'll carry that cross until the day I die, you know?
0: You, you mentioned in your story, you're like, you know, the people who have seen the real combat are not the ones out posturing for anything. And you made me laugh. Your book made me, because you go, these are the guys that pick up gardening. Yeah, yeah. And (laughs) And I'm like... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that
1: dichotomy is power. I really think that dichotomy is power. And I think that once we transcend our experiences, honestly, it leads to the dichotomy of whatever that was initially. Kind of like an artillery, you know, calling for fire, you bracket, right? I mean, Sade said it, you know, Sade's the... R&B artist, you know, and she has this beautiful song, uh, but tenderness comes from pain. And I think that if you experience enough combat, you accumulate grief. I think that's the price of combat is grief. When we project violence to solve problems, the men and women that, that are chosen to do that, we absorb grief. And within grief comes an understanding of you. you tenderness comes from that pain and you, you identify with it, you know. Uh, any of the injustice that's out there, like you, you tear up quickly, you know, you're willing to champion that. And it's just a subconscious thing, you know?
0: How how much compassion do you have to have for yourself?
1: Hmm. Man, I tell you, I mean, I've lived a life of self-deprecation, you know, (laughs) I think that uh, I deflect everything. And I think I, I just, I don't, I can't see myself enough. You know, my, my day to day is so loud with other things that, you know, brushing my teeth, making sure I, I, my hair looks nice. Something like that is like the very bottom of anything, like what I'm eating, what I'm doing. It's just like, everything is selfless, you know? And it's not, I mean, it's just, again, you know, you, you mentioned, we talked earlier about the relationship that I have with my son, you know, but that goes for everything. Like I just, I'm living on borrowed time, you know? And it's like my comfort and my wellness is not necessarily my, I'm not, it, it's not a factor. Like I'm trying to make my son's life rich and the people allow around me, their life rich, you know, like, uh,
0: so I know. So if, if, and unfortunately we will a thousand percent have you when, when Rich is here, if Rich were, were here, I would get him to talk about compartmentalization that he does. Right. Cause he's got a lot of stories that are, that are similar to yours. You know, like you two are the gardeners, of, uh, or whatever, whatever it might be that you you found. There's 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 not one ounce of posturing with with either of you, and you know how do you how do you make peace, right? Because you say earlier, I'm implicated in this man's death, and that you, you say that as a matter of fact because it's true. And someone out there will say, oh no no no, they'll try to comfort you and say no no no, and it's it's like. That's not really the right response. Yeah. The, the right, like, it's just, you're saying that, you feel it, and it's true.
1: Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, that, that cross to bear after experiences like this, and just speaking about dichotomy, you know, it's like when, when trauma exists like this, the, the way to process is there. It, it's inherent in that as well, right? right. Like when, when we kind of say a loaded statement as if your salvation is in your suffering, like within our problems, work the problem. The solution is within the problem. And growth is within the problem. And I think that's the same thing with combat grief and trauma. You know, I mean, even at that surreal level of being overrun and calling in airstrikes on yourselves, I think that, you know, we're as if we're a nut and that, and if that nut is green, you can't open it. And when that nut dries out, the lightest tap will pop that nut open. And I think that, you know, just looking at my career up to that moment of bulldog bite, that that combat experience we're talking about, it was a sledgehammer to a really dry nut. You know, and and uh, there's a lot of very synchronistic things that happen. But I think within our experiences lie the solutions to the difficulties within them. And I'm almost forced to see that at a very surreal level because the magnitude of those events that took place and the magnitudes or the intensity of my life up to that point, I knew when those events happened, everything vectored, the direction completely vectored. vectored. And then on top of that, there was, uh, we landed in back in Brogram after pre-staging. So it was like a four-hour helicopter flight after a week-long event. We come back and we're covered in blood and gore, brains and feces, and we are grieving. And just out of the blue, we get a knock on the door, man. And we're in a controlled compound. And there was a PA with three gentlemen, and they wanted to make a documentary about tattooing us. I mean, that's fucking weird, man. Not I mean, let alone from the experiences that we just experienced, but but to have to happen succinctly is inexplicable. And even when someone survives somewhat mundane combat, even if if any combat can be mundane, they have these Jesus moments. Like there's no atheist in a foxhole, right? Like all of those different things. It, you're so close and peripheral to mortality, you question the metaphysics of the universe. Is it controlled by something omnipresent? Is uh, why am I still alive? Why did these things happen? And these things are reeling in your brain at 5G, you know? And uh, so this, these three guys knock on the door and, they, and I'm again, I'm the NCOIC and uh, we have three days and then we're going right back out to do the same shit. I mean, one of my men has a spalding from, you know, an AK-47 round sewn into his skull. And these people want to make a documentary about tattooing us for the next three days right before we go back out and do this, you know? And I said, yes. And I think that that's what we need to do in our lives. And again, this is, man, there's, there's so much to unpack with this stuff, Jason. But even your attention to this story of me saying this from not only me writing the book to me sitting here and telling all of, you know, the people interested in go ruck and all this stuff, being a part of Tribe, it's almost as if God or the universe needs to express this thing. I mean, long story short, they tattooed us. They made a documentary. I became very close friends with these men, and it absolutely changed my life. And uh, about a year after those events of the combat, they flew us to New York to show us the film. It absolutely affected every fiber and vibration in my body. And uh, two of the men that had done this, uh, a guy named Casey Neistat, who's a huge YouTuber, and there's another gentleman, Scott Campbell, and he is a fine artist and tattoo artist that's extremely connected and extremely talented. Casey Neistat's extremely uh, talented as well, and he's a film producer. He's known for YouTube stuff. But before all this had happened, these guys are just cool, weird artists from New York that had this crazy idea that when you come and you tattoo people in very real environments, uh, the context of that is powerful. And it obviously is. But it was a sledgehammer to me, and uh, I fell in love with tattooing, the power and the catharsis of tattooing. I started tattooing myself. Uh, Scott Campbell uh, became my shaman mentor in tattooing, and that's almost like Jimi Hendrix teaching you to play the guitar, you know, and uh, Scott gave me all of his equipment. I was still in uh, active uh, pararescue roles for like the next three to five years, deploying and tattooing guys in between tattooing uh, uh, and doing missions, doing tier one, you know, objectives at night, coming back and tattooing guys all day until we just can't see straight. And uh, That was the remainder of my career. Um, I got involved in a thing uh, called Force Blue with a dear friend of mine, Rudy Reyes, who I was his instructor in reconnaissance, uh, who is the star of Generation Kill, Uh, he's doing a lot of brand naming things now. Uh, he's definitely a positive influence in the veteran thing, but he created this thing out of an attempt to save himself, uh, called force blue, where we take, uh, special operations combat divers and we repurpose and retrain them to do Marine conservation at extremely high levels.
0: At a really high level. And Rudy's a good dude. I've met him a couple of times out in in LA. It's, it's like you, you have to, to reinvent yourself or repurpose yourself in a way that gives something to others.
1: Yeah. Positive narrative. You,
0: You have to. And, you know, is that the kind of, because look, I see you here and I, I look into your eyes, I, I see your soul, that's how it works. And yet I also see your resolve and your intention is is strong now. I don't, I don't see a broken man, I see a really strong man.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I appreciate the comments. I mean, it's very, uh, a strong affirmation to hear you say that while we're recording this, you know? Again, there's power in selflessness, you know? And I think that, uh, what were the things that you said? Get a dog go to school and work hard. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's sage advice. You know, I mean, those, those sage wisdoms come from our own pain, you know,
0: is, is that how it is for you? Like, what's the, it, it, it's not the happy ending that you read in the fairy tales. That, that's the point. It's just life. And this is, this is a life at an extreme. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, 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 I think that the magic in it is to take the risk, jump before the net appears. And I think that, uh, you know, doing that force blue program, uh, with Rudy Reyes, just saying yes to that. And of course, I involve Oz in it. And he's kind of the ambassador of Force Blue as well as as he's becoming with yeah, GORUCK. But as he but, is. <laughs> uh, you know, I met, uh, you know, Bobby and Sarah Sheehan uh, with a Force Blue project in the Cayman Islands. And of course, Oz used his charms to mystify, you know, Bobby and Sarah Sheehan. And they own a, a production company called Working Pictures. And Bobby's been involved in the art and, and, and uh, film world for his entire life. And- they fell in love against their own will to myself and my family, you know, Oz and my wife, Jennifer, they just absolutely fell in love with us, and uh, we've developed quite a a strong relationship. And uh, one of the things Bobby and I have been working on over this last summer is this project to give combat veterans and soft veterans content that they can see to reaffirm themselves. And so like GORUCK is very in line with that. You know, I mean, you're a veteran in doing you know doing a, a very positive thing in this space. you know you're bridging the gap of veterans and combat veterans to civilians and, and uh, that's basically the the movement that we've tried to do and we created a series called Backbone series. They can check it out in backboneseries.com
0: and we'll put all these we'll put all the links yeah, that, yeah. that you, you reference And here we're as trying
1: well. to basically make this kind of like a mini Netflix for veterans and veterans doing positive things within their world reinventing themselves. You know, taking their experiences of the service and projecting that into being productive and passionate citizens, and I mean that's obviously what you guys are doing here at Goruck, and that's why it's just so beautiful that that we get to align our our energies, you know, to, to this thing. And 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 uh, there's just so much more. I mean, again, like I'm not trying to do any of this stuff,
0: you know. Oh, I know, and I, I get it. Yeah, I, it's just, you know, if you want something done, find someone who's busy. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know.
1: Oh my gosh, yeah. And and uh, uh, Bobby Sheehan, guy that's involved in film, he knows everybody in Hollywood. He knows this guy Gary Lucasey, who's like he was the president of Paramount Pictures, and he also he produced uh, Million Dollar Baby and Forrest Gump. You know, and so he basically gives my book to Gary Lucasey, and this guy's like, "Holy fuck, man!" You know, and so they're enamored with it now, and they're writing a screenplay with this stuff, and it's just. It's almost as if God or the universe is attempting to express this inexplicable thing. And I'm just trying to stay out of the way, man. Like I, I really am. And I definitely don't measure success in in awareness, but it's like a flower does not bloom because it, it it's self-conscious and it wants to. It does because it has to. Like whatever force is in the you know the, the milky, force of nature. Yeah, it's just it's yeah. forcing it to happen, and I think that you know the experiences within my life they they must be expressed, and it's not a, it's not a conscious thing; it's just taking place. And and uh, I'm haunted by all these things that we're talking about. I mean, uh, when I tattoo someone and I'm tattooing you know flowers on them or something, like it's just this this I have to express this thing, and I think it's just a lifetime of experiences that ha- ha- must come out, whether it's verbally. Physically or painting or tattooing or whatever it is, film anything, but that thing, that thing that's just inexplicable must come out. And it's beyond me. And maybe it's it's seeing God in the faces of dying men. Maybe it's seeing God or the love of the universe in my son Oz every day. I don't know what that well, is, but Yeah,
0: or as you you shared yesterday, I mean, seeing your son's face on the dying men.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean it, it's 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 beyond, it's beyond me, but it's this thing that must be expressed. And I think that the motivations behind it are so pure. It's, it's beyond me, like remove my face and name from it. It's like the we, I mean, I read, I read world, world war one literature and I just cry, you know? I mean, it's just, we project violence. We're, we're a violent species. Uh, but there is positive things that come out of that as well. And I think that people that do experiences the far ends of trauma in this world. Oh, the rest of the universe, the world to understand there's beauty that can come from that as well.
0: Roger, that's going to be a, a wrap for today. Rich is going to be pissed. He missed it. Right. And he'll, he'll be feeling better soon. We'll, we'll definitely have you back. You're, you're literally in the tribe, like, <laughs> and so, um, for, for those of you, that want to connect with Roger the the book is Warrior's Creed there there's we'll put all the links in here I mean you're on social and stuff and and look you're right if if we don't fill the the void out there with with better stories then they get filled up with something else and it's an honor to have you and to have Oz it's a good crew thanks for coming man and sharing your story and uh we're 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 blessed and I feel really fortunate that our paths have crossed and here's to many more decades to come if if the big guy upstairs will have it that way too.
1: Yeah, whatever comes, man. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for the, uh, the kinship and uh, I look forward to everything that's ahead.
0: Awesome, yeah. thanks. Yeah.